Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. If you've never been an Audible customer and want to see what they offer, just go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs, download a title for free, and start listening. It's that easy. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. And with this free 30-day trial, you'll have your pick of it all. You can hear books of all genres, narrated by Jim Dale, Stephen Fry, Will Patton, Alex Hyde-White, Jeff Brick, Neil Shaw, William Demerit, and even a few by me, George Soroy. So go to www.audibletrial.com slash Excelsior Journeys and start your own 30-day journey with Audible today. Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. Is there a burning desire within to share your creativity with the rest of the world? Do you insist on pursuing your passion by any means necessary? Then you are on an Excelsior journey, and you are not alone. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys. My name is George Soroy. Thank you so much for being here, and I really hope you've been enjoying season two of this show. It's been a real treat getting to uh, create all, all this great content for all of you. And I hope that those of you who are listening are subscribing to the show because the show is available on not only Apple Podcasts, but also Google, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, and on its home base, of course, Podbean. It's been just a, it's been just a real pleasure getting to uh, meet these, meet and talk with all, all, these, all these great people. And I hope that uh, you, you take the time on whatever platform you're listening to, to go ahead and uh, keep downloading, keep liking, keep commenting, keep subscribing. Uh, that really means a lot to me. Now, those of you who know me well know that I am a big fan of genre stories in both, you know, like film, television, everything. And funny enough, the horror genre really didn't, didn't really kick in for me until I was in about sixth grade. And that was during the time when A Nightmare on Elm Street 3 was out on HBO. And that was when, um, that was when I finally worked up the nerve to watch Poltergeist again after seeing it and being traumatized by it when I was in first grade. And the more I was getting into that genre, the more I was really loving it. And I, you know, latched on to so many great things. And one major thing that I latched on to right from, from, right from the start of its incarnation was HBO's Tales from the Crypt. And during that, you know, like during that period of time, I got to, you know, see some really great episodes and I was able to follow the franchise along uh, when it made its leap into films. And I even, um, I must have turned about a dozen of my friends onto the second Tales from the Crypt feature, Bordello of Blood. And I am so thrilled to have not only the writer director of Bordello of Blood here with me this week, but also one of the key fact, one of the, the key players in getting Tales from the Crypt developed on HBO at all. And that is Gilbert Adler. Gilbert, uh, Gilbert started off with, um, has, has collaborated with so many, so many great people, has also gone on to produce Valkyrie with Tom Cruise and 2006's Superman Returns. 
And I am just really thrilled to be able to sit down, have this great talk with, with, uh, with Gilbert Adler. I hope you all really enjoy it as much as I am about to. And so without further ado, I introduce to you Gilbert Adler. Gilbert, how are you, sir? I'm very well, thank you. And it's really nice to know that you first got involved with Tales from the Crypt when you were how old? I was uh, at that point, um, about a couple years later, when it started everything, I think it was 89, correct? Yes, and what, how old were you then? I was uh, 13. I was 13. I was in eighth uh, grade. Because when I did Tales from the Crypt, I was only 15. So we're very oh, close to me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. And, and also, um, I didn't know to mention this during my intro, but you had also done, uh, done a lot of work on Freddy's Nightmares, correct? Yes, I produced the uh, TV show, Freddy's Nightmares, and directed a bunch of them and wrote a bunch of them. Oh man, this is this is going to be such a fu such a fun interview. And from uh, from what I understand, you've got uh, quite a few different projects that are in the pipeline right now. Can you say a little bit about them? Uh, a little bit. Uh, mainly they're for streaming. Mm -hmm. um, I'm really into streaming, and I've uh, secured a couple of IPs uh, that have attracted A-list writers and A-list directors. And uh, uh, two of them were going out with uh, <clears throat> probably within the next month. Uh, one of the huge agencies in LA is handling that for us and they're setting up those meetings. And another one is, uh, those are two TV shows uh, t for streaming and, and also have a feature uh, with an Emmy award winning director and, uh, and also a big writer who, direct, who wrote the book, uh, the screenplay. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're about to look for financing for that. Oh, wow. Wow. So we're busy. Cool. We're oh, busy. yeah. And it's a, and Considering everything that's going on with, uh, with COVID, has that, has that um, stopped any sort of progress? You know, not really, because um, I'm still looking for other IPs, and that, mm -hmm. that's involving talking to writers, talking to agents, talking to people who might know where I can find IPs anywhere in the world, whether it's Asian or Indian or European or American um, or South American, and, or actually Arabic as well. And, mm -hmm. and um, so, so, no, I'm looking for material all the time. And we're reading a lot of stuff. And uh, so, the Zoom, so, so with Zoom, we really have been able to um, keep things pretty well moving. Yeah, that's, that's great. That's great. And yeah, Zoom has been, uh, Zoom has been very good to me too. Like, um, you know, getting to have this, these great opportunities to talk to so, to so many accomplished people. And um, this is, this is going to be a lot of fun. So let's go all the way back to the beginning. Um, Let's go to basically to your origin story. You know, what was for you that lightning bolt moment that said to you, this is the field I want to be in. This is, this is the kind of world that I want to make my own. What was, uh, what was that moment for you? Well, it was when Moses threw those tabernacles down. <laughs> I, no, no, I'm sorry. I, I went too far back. That's, that's too far back. Um, you know, I was this kid in, in New York. Um, my dad mm -hmm. had a floor covering store in Yonkers. I'm from Yonkers. Oh, and nice. we all worked in the store and I wanted to, and I was very attracted to Broadway, musicals, mm -hmm. theater, movies, television. And, you know, when I wasn't working in the store and going to school, I was just, you know, absorbing and trying to digest everything I could in terms of the Broadway world and movies and television. I had no access and no connections. And, and it, was, um, it was a very frustrating time because you know, not having any access is extremely difficult. Yeah. And uh, I, used to, I used to tell people that if I ever won an Academy Award, I would have to thank the squirrels in Central Park 
because I used to go <laughs> in Central Park and sit on a rock and talk to the squirrels. Really? Yeah. And, and oh, wow. I mean, it sounds, it sounds crazy and, and, and ridiculous. But on the other hand, that's what I did. And yeah. so it all started way back then. Um, I got involved with developing um, some plays uh, with some writers. Um, Jack Gelber, who was a very successful playwright, he wrote The Connection. And he had written a play uh, that, that a friend of mine, Jack Temption, uh, who became my partner, uh, mm -hmm. we really loved and we said we wanted to produce it. And nice. so we took it to, to the Edinburgh Theater Festival where they have theater 24 seven. Mm -hmm. uh, we produced the play and while there, um, the uh, press secretary for the mayor of New York at the time, Mayor Lindsay, tells you mm -hmm. how long ago this is, right. um, said, you know, you guys should take a look at a play that's uh, in, a, in a garage. And you, I think you guys will love it. It's, it's, it's hilariously funny, but it's not in English. Right. I said, what do you mean it's not in English? And they said, it's in five languages, but not in English. It's in Italian, German, French, and, and Japanese, on and on. And I'm like, wow. uh, but I'm going to understand it? Yeah, you'll, I think you'll <laughs> understand it. So I went to see the play. Mm -hmm. I flipped out over it. I loved it. We signed them to come to America right then and there. We wrote a check for $1,000, which in those days was a lot of money. And we didn't have yep. the money. We were going to figure out how to get the money by the time we got home. Mm -hmm. And so we decided we we're going to produce this play. So he came back to the States. We raised the money and spoke to our lawyer. And our lawyer says, well, I don't understand. How are you going to get them here? And, yeah. and we said, what do you mean? We're, we're going to put them on a plane. No, no, no. How are you going to get them here? I said, I don't understand the question. He said, you can't just bring them into the country. The unions yeah. won't, won't allow it. You know, only distinguished artists. I said, well, okay, they're distinguished artists. And he goes, no, no. <laughs> John Gilgood is a distinguished artist. You know, Angela Lansbury is a distinguished artist. These people are from the provinces and they've never even been on the West End. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, so what am I going to do? He said, I, I, I think you're going to lose your money. I mm. said, I can't lose the thousand dollars because I don't have it. Right. And so literally overnight, I went to Joe Papp, who was the head of, of uh, uh, Shakespeare Festival and the public theater yep. who, I, who I knew. Mm -hmm. And I asked him if he would write a letter on my behalf. I went to yeah. Jules Irving, who was at Lincoln Center, running Lincoln wow. Center, did the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, I had worked earlier in my career as the director of grants for the New York State Council on the Arts, a government agency. Oh, wow. And Kitty, and Kitty Carlisle Hart was the chairman. And I went to her and I said, would you write a letter to say these people are distinguished artists? So literally 24 hours later, I went back to the uh, immigration. Mm -hmm. I said, listen, I, will these letters help? And I had a letter from all those people, plus from Mayor Lindsay's office, because my friend was the press secretary, and he was just yeah. one responsible for introducing me to the play in the first place. And so this guy looked at these letters and he said, why didn't you bring them yesterday? And, and the truth of the matter was I, hadn't, I didn't have them. But I right. said, I didn't realize that you wanted them. You, you would want to see them. Lickety split, bang, bang, bang. Now they're distinguished artists. I can bring them into the country. Wow. We produced That's the play. Great. We produced the play. It ran, it got incredible no notices from everybody. Clive Barnes, John Simon from New York Magazine, just down the road, Jack Kroll. Everyone oh, loved man. the play. And it ran for about four or five years uh, off Broadway. And it was called El Grande de Coca-Cola. <laughs> uh, we opened it at the Mercer Art Center. And while I'm working at the Arts Council and producing the play, 
I get a call from the stage manager one day and the stage manager says, I've got really bad news for you. I said, what's the matter? I, I said, we're sold out for the whole weekend. What, what, what are you talking to me about? And he said, well, the building just fell down. Oh my. I, I, I said, what, what are you <laughs> talking about? The building, did, did the set fall down? Do, 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 do I need a carpenter? Tell me what happened. He goes, no, Gil, you don't need a carpenter. The building fell down. I said, so where are you? He said, I'm in the building and I'm looking outside where the wall used to be. Oh. And I said, are the police there? Oh yeah, the police are here. The fire department is here. I said, I'll see you in about 15 minutes. I'm coming right down. And I saw that the, that the building had fallen down. It was, the broad, it was the old Broadway Central Hotel on Mercer Street. It had been there for a hundred years. It had been raining for four days and the whole thing just collapsed. Wow. So, so no, so no like warning or anything like that. No, you know, like nothing. Luckily, nobody, to slip, it just, wow. nobody got, nobody got hurt, but we had to move the show. And yeah. to make a long story short, we contacted, or they actually contacted us, the Plaza Hotel on 59th street in Central Park South, a mm -hmm. far cry from the, from the Mercer Art Center at the time. And yeah. literally one week later, we reopened it at the, at the uh, Plaza Hotel. Wow. Had wow, that, that happened, so cool. we probably wouldn't be having this conversation. Oh man, that's that's amazing. It's it's really like almost like divine intervention. Really, it was just like uh, you know, you got to you got to um, basically like kind of throwing something at you that normally other people would have you know just kind of given up on, but you were able to you know make it work in a different venue. That's terrific. Yeah, it was it was crazy because while we were down there, there was one scene in the show where this. Uh, Actor Alan Sherman, who's a fantastic uh, English and American actor, uh, now mm -hmm. is American, and and um, he wears these uh, shoes on his knees, so he looks like Toulouse Lautrec, and he <laughs> dances all over the stage. Well, we needed those shoes to yeah. remake those shoes was going to take months and would mm -hmm. cost a lot of money. Yeah. So we, when we saw that the wall was gone, we could actually see our set from the street. Oh wow! And so we went to the police and we said, "Could could we just go in there for five minutes? We want to get the shoes." Mm -hmm. and they said, the building is unsafe. The building could collapse at any second. And I said, well, but, but, but we need these shoes. So my partner, Jack Tempson and I, and a third partner named John Vaccaro, we went mm -hmm. into the theater with flashlights, found the shoes, and got the hell out of there as quickly as possible. Wow. And we were able to open the show a week later. Oh, man. That, that's, that's amazing. That is amazing. So, so we, um, right, we sold the film rights for that show. Mm -hmm. to Ray Stark, and oh, we wow. never was able to figure out what to do with it. And then I think we got the rights back and sold it to Paramount, uh, but no, a film never happened. Mm. Uh, but the play ran for years in New York and all over the world. We had, I think, eight companies in America. We had a company in Sao Paulo, uh, Amsterdam, I mean, all over the world. I mean, it was just uh, an amazing triumph of writing on the part of these people. Mm -hmm. And on, on uh, the play, you know, was successful and enabled me to go on to the, the next thing. Yeah, that's wow. So what was, so what was that next thing for you? Were you still in theater for a while or did you make that transition to film? Like after you, you were working with the rights? I was constantly doing theater or trying to do theater. And it was very, very painful and very difficult because it was very difficult to raise the money. You know, you would know right away after the play opened if you were successful or not. And it was an immediate reaction, as good as the play was on Coca-Cola and the reviews, and it ran forever. The next play that I did by the same people called Bullshot Crummond 
um, lasted one week. But what we did with that one, Coke had been so successful in playing in uh, San Francisco mm -hmm. that they agreed, and, and actually their insistence, we put everybody and everything into a truck and shipped it out to San Francisco. And we mm -hmm. opened Bullshot Crummond in San Francisco and it ran in San Francisco for five years. Oh, and wow. The film, and the film rights were sold to handmade films. Nice. And they made it into a movie. Uh, That's and terrific. Probably, and it probably was the only time in history because I, I, we were very concerned about our initial investors in the New York production who lost everything. So mm -hmm. we included them in the San Francisco production and it could be the only time that an off-Broadway play that closed in one week actually recouped all of its money and went into profits. That's fantastic. And that's, that's great that you were able to do that. So working with, uh, with, hand, with handmade films, that was, uh, that's the Monty Python group, right? Those yeah, guys who, was, who uh, worked George on that? Harrison. George yeah. Harrison. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's fantastic. Uh, so it sounds like you were really kind of like making that transition into, you know, like from theater to film, like almost, uh, they were almost like, seems like they were one on top of the other. It seems like the... They were yeah, they were concurrent. I mean, I, I was doing theater and constantly trying to do more and more theater um, mm -hmm. and also trying to figure out how do I get into film or television? And I started talking to some playwrights and I raised a little bit of money, very little bit, and I had them write a few uh, uh, screenplays, none yeah. of which I could sell, total failure. Mm. Um, and then I got, uh, I, I found a little movie that Playboy was putting up half the money for, very low, very little money, and mm -hmm. an English company uh, was putting up the other half of the money, and they wanted me to produce it, and I went out to Los Angeles, and it was, you know, they used to have these movies in England called, um, uh, um, they, they took various topics, and, and it, it was, uh, you know, um, I forgot the name of the title that they used, but the idea was that we would do an American version of it. Okay. Um, and so we, we did this version. Uh, it was called, um, uh, Jesus, I'm, lo I'm losing it. Again. <laughs> the name of the, um, uh, Up the Pentagon. Okay. And it, was, and it was a spoof about people in the Pentagon. It was a sexy little spoof. So Playboy put up half the money in this other company. I did that. And then from there, the English company was very happy with what we did. And so they had a movie that was a million and a half dollar budget. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, they'd like me to do that. Prior to all this, while I was still trying to figure out what I was about, I was mm -hmm. teaching a class at Hunter College about if you want to learn to produce a play, produce a play. And yeah. Brian De Palma was a good friend of my partner, Jack Temptions. And oh, wow. he was teaching a class at Sarah Lawrence College. If you want to produce a movie, produce a movie. Yeah. And so we merged the two classes and we developed a screenplay uh, called Home Movies. Uh, yes. Which, yeah. Which we which we made for very little money, mm -hmm. and on the campus of uh, Sarah Lawrence College, I slept in the production office with no air conditioning, dying my that summer, mm -hmm. um, and uh, we sold us we we went we went into profit with that picture right away, mm -hmm. um, and that was my first foray into movies. Oh man, and it's funny you should say you uh, mentioned Hunter College because I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that I went to college just a few blocks away from there at Marymount Manhattan College. Huh? And uh, yeah, I, stu I studied theater there as well. And that was, uh, that was a big, um, and you know, like I had been on that, you know, that stage at Marymount, you know, quite a few times and made the transition from acting into writing and just been, it's been just, you know, a blessing ever since. So it's been, uh, I've, 
I, I needed to just kind of like throw that out there just because uh, just because you were teaching just like a few blocks away from where I would eventually go to college. Yeah. That's really cool. <laughs> yeah, and it, and it resulted in this movie because we, we developed a screenplay and said over two semesters and we taught it in our apartments, Ryan's apartment and our apartment. And, and at the end we said um, goodbye and good luck. And they said, wait a minute, you've been, you've been preaching if we want to learn to make a movie, make a movie. We've been working on a script for two semesters and you've been telling us who does what uh, on a movie set. We want to make the movie. Oh, and wow. so we raised the money uh, with Brian and made this, made this little movie. Nice, nice. How was, how, what kind of experience was that like working with Brian De Palma? Because that was you know, right at the very start of his, what would eventually be well, his he had, career. He had, so. he had already done uh, The Fury with Kirk Douglas. So he was pretty big. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and in fact, Kirk Douglas was in our movie, uh, on home movies. No um, kidding. Yeah, That's and awesome. he was an investor as well. Um, and... Um, uh, yeah, so 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 it was it was interesting. It was a very big learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's well, that's okay. My phone is somehow my phone is somehow attached to my computer, which I've never been able to figure out. Oh, no worries, no worries. It happens. Well, hey, you know, producers work. You know, it's never done. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, uh, so it was, it was working with Brian De Palma was, was very informational for me and a big, big learning curve. Yeah. Uh, it, it, was, it was my first time making a movie. Mm-hmm. We didn't have a lot of money. We were trying very desperately to, you know, do, do everything in the right way and respect everyone's deals. And, but it was a, it was a real challenge. And it, we, you know, we made the movie for $350,000. Wow. Wow. And so what, um, so once that comes out and you get that, uh, you get that sort of taste of being a producer for, you know, for film now, um, what was it, um, what was it like just, you know, kind of, you know, was, um, did you feel like that was going to be where you should be going, you know, from then on? Um, I think suicide came into mind after finishing that movie. Uh, it was really <laughs> very difficult to do. Uh, but you know, yeah, I, I, I had the taste and I, I just, I wanted to do other things and I wanted to see if I could do it, get into other films and television. And then a friend of mine had, had raised some money, developed a script and he, sh- he had sold up the Pentagon to, to, to Playboy. And he said, but they, they need a producer and they, they wouldn't let him produce it. So I said, well, you know, what do you want from me? And he said, I want you to do it. Oh, wow. So I did that movie for half a million dollars. And the, as I said earlier, the English partner on that uh, loved what we did and then said they had a, they had a movie for a million and a half dollars, um, which ultimately became uh, Certain Fury uh, mm-hmm. with Tatum O'Neill and Irene Cara and Peter Fonda. Oh, wow. And we shot that. Very so cool. again, an- another little independent movie, but all of these things were leading to me getting bigger budgets, more responsibility. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, in the meantime, I would, be go to, I would go to Los Angeles from New York and, you know, talk to agents and tell them that I wanted to produce this, that, and the other. And people would listen to me and, you know, I'd walk out the door and they probably, you know, laugh their head off. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for one guy. Yeah. Uh, Chris, Chris Albrecht, who was running HBO. Well, now, uh, a few years later, was running HBO. Yeah. But he, had, he was an agent. And he mm-hmm. kind of listened to me and, you know, and took me seriously. Wow. And so when when he got into uh, uh, HBO, mm-hmm. um, we we were involved in a series there called The Hitchhiker. 
Um, I know and, the Hitchhiker. Yeah, yeah. I remember. I remember seeing that when I was a kid. Yeah. It was so definitely. So so much of it went over my head, but at the same time, like I was, there was something about it that just had me like always just tuning in, at least for the beginning, to see what each episode was all about. Yeah. So we did that, and um, I think Chris was very happy with the results of that, and offered me other projects at HBO. Um, mm. So I took over a show that was in trouble called Vietnam War Stories that was shot in Savannah, Georgia. And I found myself mm -hmm. in Savannah, Georgia, dealing with great humidity and huge problems with finishing the show. But well, I was able to figure out how to, how to do it so that they came out well and they were on budget. So I got, sort of got the reputation of, and, and, I, and I started thinking, how do I, how do I make myself different yeah. than every other schmuck out there? I mean, why <laughs> is anyone gonna hire me? Right. And I realized one of the things is if I'm, if I'm very careful creatively how I approach these projects and I'm very careful economically, mm -hmm. then you know, I can't compromise the quality of these projects. Yeah. Because it's easy if, you know, to take a dollar and, and spending a dollar, anyone can do that. The idea right. is to spend a dollar and get a dollar 10 or a dollar 15 worth of product. Mm -hmm. So I, I spent a lot of energy thinking about how do I do that? And so I got the reputation of a guy who is very respectful of the budget, but is also able to make things that look really terrific. Yeah. And that helped my career enormously. Because when, uh, when Tales from the Crypt, which you mentioned earlier on, mm -hmm. uh, first started, um, Chris told the, 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 the original partners um, that he wanted me to produce it. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I, they had made three episodes. Yeah. And so I watched the three episodes and, and uh, I said, you know, I have, a, I have a problem with a lot of it, but, you know, um, and I went into a meeting with uh, the partners and said, look, the, the Crypt Keeper in the original was very dark and a shroud and wasn't very nice, wasn't accessible. I said, I think that's all wrong. I think the Crypt Keeper, I'd want to dress him as Liberace, as a, as a chiropractor, <laughs> as a candidate for president. I, I want to make him more flamboyant. I want him to make him as he's the wraparound that basically says, Hey kiddies, we, we tried to scare you, but now it's okay. You don't have to look under the bed. You can turn the light off and go to sleep. So I, I said, I wanted to make him more accessible. Second thing was the comic books were from the fifties. Mm -hmm. And if you read the first two panels, you knew the entire show. Yeah. I said, I want, to, I want to glean something from the comic books, but I want to then throw everything else out and create and write quirky, sexy, funny, twisted stories that scare yeah. people. And thirdly, I thought, you know, we could get, we could get stars to do the show. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, and, and, and the first thing that they said was, you're never going to get stars. HBO won't, we don't have the money. And I said, did I mention anything about money? And they said, well, how are you going to get the stars? And I said, well, I, I think if you, if you ask a comedian to do a dramatic role, or if mm -hmm. you ask a dramatic actress to do something that's horror, I think they might just be intrigued enough to do it if the scripts are good enough. Yeah. And they said, well, yeah, you can try, but that's not going to happen, which we did make happen. Um, and secondly, <laughs> I said, you know, with the scripts, um, I, I was very dedicated to uh, William Gaines, who created yeah. the comic books with his dad. And I mm -hmm. said, look, I, I need to make sure that Bill Gaines loves our scripts, not likes them. Because mm -hmm. you know, the, I, I have great respect for these people who create these IPs, whether they be books or comic books or whatever. Right. And I, I, if I can't make it so that he's happy with it, I don't want to make it. Yeah. 
And so I talked to Bill Gaines quite a bit and I would show him the drafts before I would show anybody to get mm -hmm. his notes. <clears throat> and we became great buddies. We became great friends. And uh, I loved working with him and it was just a great honor and a, a privilege to know him and, and, and work with him. And so that's sort of got me in, in, in a big way. And what, what the biggest question that they asked me was, how, how are you going to get, you have to shoot five pages a day, every day. Mm -hmm. Now on, on uh, Freddy's Nightmares, I was shooting 10 pages a day. I was shooting an hour of television in five days. And on day six, we went into the next episode and we went 20 episodes. Wow. Season. So, and I did that for two seasons. So yeah. my reaction to them was when they said, you know, you have to shoot five pages every day. How are you going to do that? I said, uh, what do we do after lunch? <laughs> and so that sort of nailed it. And, you know, we became partners on that. And we had, I think, nine or 10 seasons on HBO and it generated three movies. Yeah. Yeah. And it also wow. generated an offshoot of another show called Perversions of Science, which I created with Bob Zemeckis that we sold to HBO. I remember that. I remember that very briefly. You know, like a, a, as soon as you mentioned that, I was just like, oh, wait, I remember that being on HBO. Yeah, yeah. Um, so taking, uh, taking just like a step back, since you mentioned Freddy's Nightmares, um, there was, uh, I'm not sure if you saw the, uh, the documentary, Never Sleep Again, but they did touch in, touch a lot on Freddy's Nightmares. And um, Bob Shea was very much like anyone, anyone who wanted to write one could write one, anyone to direct one could direct one. So it sounds like there was a lot of freedom on that show. Uh, what was it like being a part of that sort of like syndicated show where they just basically just kind of the, where the owners of the IP just, you know, put, put their hands up and just say like, do whatever you want. What was it well, like I doing knew, that? I, I, knew, I knew Bob from New York City um, mm -hmm. and I knew him quite well. And he actually asked me to do Freddy's Nightmares. And um, I was a bit concerned about it because we had very, very little money. And mm -hmm. it was an hour show. And, you know, we didn't have time for stop and write for two weeks or one week or one day. We had to yeah. keep going. And so, um, yes, it's true. People who wanted to write, people wanted to direct, he gave them an opportunity, mm -hmm. um, which made it more difficult to some respect for me because I had to make sure they still came in on budget. Yeah. And that we had a show that would cut and it would be complete. Mm -hmm. And the mandate was also that they wanted to use them as one hour shows. Uh, in the first season, they also wanted me to supervise the writing so that they could do, they could gang up on them and use them as two hour movies. Oh, so I had really? to write them such that they could do that. And then in the second season, they came to me and they said, yeah, we want that, but we also want them to work as half hours. So we were just nuts about the writing yeah. and, and the directing. And basically that's how I sort of got into writing and directing because after doing the first season and they wanted me to come back, I said, I don't, I don't think so. Yeah. I, think I want to go on to something else. And they said, well, maybe you want to write one. And I said, yeah, maybe I should try that. And so I yeah. wrote one and they said, well, you should write another one. And so I wrote a second one. And then they said, well, you know, we, we, you should direct one. Why don't you direct one? And I, and I so I directed Freddy's Nightmare. So mm -hmm. I sort of got into writing and directing sort of ass backwards than most people get into producing. Most people get into yeah. writing and directing and become producers. I became a producer and got into writing and directing because of that. And then when I went on to Tales from the Crypt, um, it was only a natural extension that I would produce all the shows 
mm-hmm. I would I would write and direct all the Crypt Keeper segments, and I would write some of the shows and direct some of the shows. Wow. So it seemed like Freddy's Nightmares was almost kind of like a like a developmental field for you know for people to really kind of get their feet wet in that in that uh, in that whole genre. Were there people that you uh, had worked with during that time on Freddy's Nightmares where you knew just like that person's going to go on to do something really cool? You know, you, you always think that and, and you never know. And, and the business is so ephemeral and it moves so quickly. And if you're concentrating on your career, which I was doing, you know, mm-hmm. you don't really get too involved with what's happening on the outside world. You, know, you just don't have the time. Yeah. So with Tales from the Crypt, I mean, we had, you know, really A-list writers and A-list directors, some of whom oh, went yeah. on to be bigger writers and some, but most of the directors, I mean, from Frank, uh, John Frankenheimer to Billy Friedkin, Mm-hmm. Dick Donner, Zemeckis, um, you know, all of these, uh, Walter Hill, yep. wonderful directors who it was such a, a joy for me to meet, let alone work with. Yeah. And it was, and it was a, an incredibly interesting learning experience for me because I realized that these directors, as, as big as they were and as accomplished as they were, they were respectful if I approached them about material. Yeah. And, and I think they, they sort of appreciated that. And mm-hmm. so I learned a great deal from working with them. And, and it really helped me a lot, understanding how to become a better producer and also how to be a better writer and a director. Nice, very nice. You, you mentioned uh, that you had, you had worked on all of the Crypt Keeper segments. Was John Kassir always the, the choice for the voice of the Crypt Keeper or was there someone else originally? Uh, my very good friend, John Kassir, to this day, I Zoom, uh, he and I, during the pandemic now, Zoom each other once a week. Oh, no oh, kidding. Oh, yeah, we're, we're good buddies. He's, he's, he's the best. I, 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 I'm, I've been a fan of his from the first in 10 days. You know, like that, was, that was one of the shows that I was watching a lot when I was a kid. So, well, I had yeah. a writing partner on Tales from the Crypt named Alan Katz. And Alan oh, and yeah. I used to write all of these silly puns. And then we would go into the studio with John and record him. Mm-hmm. And then we would work with the puppeteers. And in those days, there were six puppeteers. And I was a real bugaboo about the mouth being exactly right, mm. the words. And so yeah. we would rehearse that. And then we would shoot two wraparounds in a 12-hour day. That's how crazy it was. I mean, it was difficult to get right. And we had effects. And we had camera movements. And we had lighting changes. So, you know, it was very challenging. Um, in retrospect, extremely rewarding. I mean, I loved yeah. it. Yeah, and it, it was such a, it was so fun to, to work with, uh, as it still is, to work with John Kassir. Yeah, I used, I uh, used to do like the Crypt Keeper impression in college just to, you know, freak my friends out. So yeah, I, I hold all this stuff like so, you know, near and dear to my heart, you know, because, because of all that. Do I get to hear your impression of the Crypt Keeper? <clears throat> well, let's see. Let, let me just. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> I should call John and get him on the phone right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would, I would just, you know, go up to someone and go like, well, kitties. And you know, pretty good. Just, yeah. Pretty good. And when I was, uh, when, when I was shrunk enough, that's when I would launch into the laugh. But uh, I think, I think that um, I, I don't think this, uh, this room could really hold that. <laughs> but it was you know, a lot of fun. I know people know John and remember his work uh, on Tales from the Crypt, but he's a really very accomplished actor. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of voiceover work on some of these animation projects, but mm-hmm. he's also, you know, on camera as a, a live action actor. He's a very accomplished actor. And yeah. uh, 
Yeah, I love working with him. Oh yeah, and like I said, you know, like I've I've I was a fan of his from his multiple seasons on First and Ten. That was yeah, that was that was something that I I just gravitated to really quickly. That was that that was on right around the time that I was really getting into football. So it was the timing of that was was just right for me. Was, mm-hmm. uh, so um, so while you're working on Tales from the Crypt and and you're doing you're doing all all this great stuff, when was the decision made to transition into films with those? Well, it was a natural extension. I mean, you know, I, it was interesting because when, when I started out, people would say to me, you have to make a decision. You can either go into television or you can go into film, but you can't do both. They'll mm. never accept that. And I was very confused. And I would say, why? I mean, they're, they're the same. I mean, what's the big difference? No, no, television is very different than film. And I, and I would purposely then, as I did with trying to convince people that I make, made things differently and special, and I can mm-hmm. do things that other people might not be able to do with budgets and with creative uh, uh, scholastic um, height, you know, of what we were doing, then I also thought, well, you know, I, I want to do both. And yeah. so I purposely would v- vacillate back and forth. I do a TV series, then I do a movie and my entire career. And, and really what was interesting was years later, especially with the, when streaming came into being, everyone looked at me and said, wow, you do both. That's fantastic. We only see guys who do film or television, but you've actually done both. Mm-hmm. And it became in vogue that, you know, that I had done both was very helpful. That's great. Yeah. So, um, so around that time, I uh, believe Demon Knight was the first one out, correct? Right. We decided that um, we wanted to exploit the franchise further. And mm-hmm. the idea was to see if we could make a few movies. So we made a deal with Universal uh, to do um, two or three movies. Yeah, uh, the first uh, the first one uh, Ernest Dickerson directed, uh, mm-hmm. Old Demon Knight. Yep, um, and we produced that. And then the second one, Alan Katz and I rewrote a Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale script, um, which they had done in college, and uh, uh, the powers that be determined that I should direct it. Ah. And so, with after a big gulp, I went uh, <laughs> okay. And that was that was Bordello of Blood, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was. I, I still remember, you know, telling my friends, because when I, when I had seen that when I was a junior in college, and I was, the, the main selling point that I was telling everyone was, so there's Dennis Miller, you know, like spraying down, um, spraying down hookers in a bordello with a super soaker that's filled with holy water while Ballroom Blitz is playing in the background. And they were like, I'm in. <laughs> <laughs> that was the selling point. And that, and I'm, I was so glad when I, when I heard about that scene, that's what got me in originally, you know, like I was just like, I got to see this. And I was thrilled to see that that was almost like the centerpiece, like the big climax of, of yeah. the movie. Mm-hmm. That was, that was just a lot of fun. That's a really fun movie. And um, I was good. It was glad to see like, you know, it seemed like, you know, everyone was having a good time. No one was, really, you know, taking it too seriously to the point of like trying you know every, it's, everyone seemed to know what they were doing you know they knew what kind of movie they were in was uh what was it like on the set for that uh as they, most sets are kind of tense because you're always fighting time and money no matter what you're doing it's always a question of time and money so that, it gets kind of tense occasionally um mm-hmm. we tried to keep it light we tried to keep it so that the performances were there you know i wanted to make sure that they they had their time to get the performances right. And as we did on Tales from the Crypt, the series. Um, yep. And so, uh, yeah, it was, uh, it was challenging as they all are, 
Um, but uh, we got through it. And from that, I realized I kind of really enjoyed the producing better than the directing or the writing. Yeah. And I found the writing kind of hard. Um, you're sort of in a room alone and with a blank screen in front of you. Oh, yeah. Alan and I, I know that all back, too well. <laughs> yeah, Alan and I would go back and forth, you know, with uh, different, we would act out things and see what we could do. And then we'd put, put it on, the, on paper or, or on the computer. But I realized I really, I really felt the, the easiest thing for me and where I felt most comfortable was in the producing. Nice. So I went from, you know, I did, I, I did for a while, I did some TV shows. I directed Charm. I directed uh, a few others, TV series, and realized, you know, I really, I really like movies and yeah. I like television. I like producing. Mm -hmm. So I sort of shifted gears a little bit. Instead of developing as a writer or a director, I, I sort of concentrated on the producing. Excellent. Excellent. And the... Um... Um, I know that like right at the early 90s, that's when you and Alan wrote the second Children of the Corn movie, which, you know, that's, it's a franchise is still going today. And that, you know, that would have just stayed as one movie if you guys didn't, didn't do that. Was that an idea that you guys had to kind of pick up where that first one left off? Or did you want to, were, were you approached to basically just, you know, say like, hey, we want to make a sequel of this. Can you guys write it? What was yeah, the... That's, that's exactly what happened. We were approached and I was like, you gotta be kidding. I mean, that was a big <laughs> movie at the time. Yeah. Here we are to do a sequel. I was like, oh, this, this has failure written all over it. We're gonna die. They're mm -hmm. gonna kill us. And, but, you know, we, we had this idea and they really liked the idea. And we, so we said, okay, we'll write it. And I, and I was supposed to write it and produce it. Mm. And, um, but I got another thing in the meantime, we finished writing it and they were putting it together. And in the meantime, I got a, another thing with Warner Brothers and uh, I wasn't able to produce it. Yeah. Um, but, it, you know, to this day, I swear to you, I get checks for writing that thing. I'm, I'm amazed. I, I get a check like twice a year. Wow. For writing that script. And I go, who's looking at this script and paying money for it now? <laughs> how, how, they must have made a mistake, but I don't want to talk, say anything to anybody. <laughs> that's great. And yeah, like, I mean, that's a, that's a franchise that is still... Yeah, they're they're just churning them out like one after the other. Obviously, right now they're kind of in standstill, considering considering uh, you know who's got the rights and everything. But the um, but it's it's it was really interesting, kind of seeing that all of a sudden just create this huge franchise. Did you expect that to happen? No, we 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 no, we we really had no idea what we were doing. I mean, we <laughs> sort of came up with this idea and pitched it, and they went nuts. And and Alan and I looked at each other like. Is this, are they for real? <laughs> Am I being punked? Is Ashton Kutcher going to come, come out here? <laughs> right, right. So, so, uh, so we wrote it. I mean, it, and, and, uh, cause you know, he and I enjoyed working with each other and we, we had fun doing it and we wrote it and, uh, and they made it and it, and it did very well. And it, and yeah. it, it sparked, uh, you know, Children of the Corn three and four yep. and on. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, it's, it's been really interesting kind of seeing this, you know, this franchise that, I mean, everyone was, you know, sure that that was going to be just that one movie. So it's it's really interesting to see where it could go. You know, there's so many different iterations of it now. That's it's pretty fascinating. Um, I, must, I must say, I'm I'm rather impressed with your research because rarely do people ask me about Children of the Corn too. <laughs> <laughs> I I just remember see I remember seeing 
I, I remember, you know, like I had to look it up because I was 99% sure that you and Alan had, had written that, but then yeah. I had to look it up and everything. Once I saw that, I was like, oh, I'm so asking him about this. <laughs> <laughs> you know, jumping ahead a little bit. In the late 90s, you started up uh, Dark Castle and that was with Joel Silver and Bob Zemeckis, right? Right. What was the mission, you know, for, for, that, uh, for that company? What was it that you were looking well, we, for? Well, we, uh, we had secured rights from uh, the William Castle estate uh, oh, wow. for some of those uh, movie, you know, those movie rights for me- remakes. Mm-hmm. And so the first movie out of the gate was House on Haunted Hill, oh, and, which okay. was a remake of a William Castle movie of a long mm-hmm. time ago. Yeah. Um, and again, you know, his daughter was very involved in the production and I wanted to be very respectful of, of his work because his yeah. work was, you know, loved by many, many people. Oh yeah. And so um, we were very careful about making sure that we were, in tune with what you know he william castle would have wanted and what what he he would have enjoyed seeing did you um, think of uh, were, were there any sort of gimmicks in mind to uh to add into the theater for the experience we talked about it yeah but we, but you know it never happened and and in those days um i think it was too much of a problem and too much of a difficulty and that and the pro and, and the movies were you know it wasn't a few hundred theaters with thousand theaters two thousand theaters so you really couldn't effectively you know have some of those gimmicks in there Oh yeah, yeah. You definitely don't want to do the percepto gimmick in there, right. especially especially these days. Yeah. Um, I, I think if I remember correctly, the House on Haunted Hill one. I think there was like a skeleton that was going up the um, up the aisles or something right. like that in the in the theater. Yeah, yeah. So the uh, so so what was it? Um, so House on Haunted Hill comes out, and what um, so you you guys just kept on going. Was it just looking at William Castle movies, or was it a a uh, matter of like trying to uncut, you know, get some get some new IPs up and running. Were there uh, any sort of ideas about that? We we were looking everywhere, but we yeah. knew we we knew we had uh, William Castle, and mm-hmm. we thought this is these are really good, you know, these are good things to be working from because there's a history to it. Yeah. Um, but every once in a while, we would get you know an original would come in, and you know I think the second one, uh, which was Demon Knight, uh, oh. was was an original script. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we worked on that for, I guess, a few months and before we showed it to Ernest Dickerson mm-hmm. and he really liked it. And we had a conversation and he, he sort of, you know, understood what we were about, what we're trying to do. And uh, we were watching, the, you know, we were thinking about making the same movie, which I always find interesting because I always tell young filmmakers, you know, the first thing you should do when you meet a director mm-hmm. and after he's read the script that you've developed or, or worked on is to make sure you want to make the same movie. Yeah. And it's amazing how many times I've heard, gee, the producer didn't really talk to the director about the movie that they want to make. Mm-hmm. They make the deal and all of a sudden they're at each other's throat because they saw the movie differently. Yeah. So we had, we, I've always had long talks with directors before, you know, bringing them into the fold because I want to make sure we're talking about making the same movie. Yeah. That's... And, and so we made, and so we made Demon Knight um, and we made that in Los Angeles as well. Wow. That's so cool. Now is Dark Castle still going? Is that? Uh, no, it's not going at all. I think um, it, 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 you know, we, we made a few movies. Um, mm-hmm. I went on to other things. Bob went on to other things, and uh, Joel went on to other things. And I, you know, it just it just sort of fell by the wayside. It it it, it served its purpose for all of us um, yeah. in terms of making these kinds of movies. Um, mm-hmm. And you know, I I sort of got very involved from that. You know, we made that second one, and then I made a thing called Ghost Ship. Yes. Um, 
I remember and, Gosha. Yeah. yeah, in Australia. And, um, you know, all of these movies we made for a budget and mm -hmm. we made them really, really well. And they got recognized by the people at the studio. Mm -hmm. And so at the time, Lorenzo de Bonaventura was, was the head of uh, Warner Brothers. And yeah. when I finished uh, Ghost Ship, he called me. Um, actually, I, I should get, I'm going to lay a funny story. Um, sure. I'm finishing up one of these movies, and Lorenzo says, I, I need you to read a script called Ghost Ship. And I said, okay. And he mm -hmm. said, but, you know, and he said, I need you to go to Australia and see, you know, we want to shoot it there and see what you can come up with. Mm -hmm. And I said, you want me to go to Australia for, for a week? Hmm. And I, I've never been to Australia. And I'm like, really? I'm going to go to Australia on their nickel for a week? <laughs> so I go to Australia and they have people helping me and taking me all over the country. And I'm looking for how do, how do you make ghost ship? What's the body of water? Is there a tank? You know, how do I? And on the last night I'm in Sydney and I'm in the, in the hotel room and I'm, I'm sweating going, what am I going to say to when I get back? I, I have no idea how to make this movie. I, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And I go to sleep and I wake up at three o'clock in the morning in a sweat and I'm like, I wonder if this could work. Hmm. And I take the 14 hour flight back. I'm in a car coming from the LA airport to home, dying to take a shower. And Lorenzo calls on the phone and goes, ah, are you back? I, said, I just landed. He goes, go home, take a shower, come to the studio this afternoon. I want to talk to you right away. I go, wow. Can we, can we do this tomorrow? No, no, I want to, I want to hear what you have to say. And I'm like, oh God, I have nothing to say. <laughs> I can't say that to him. <laughs> so right. I, go, I go over to the studio. And I said, okay, this is, this is what I think. See what you think. We can make this movie for the budget you want to spend, mm -hmm. but we never shoot on the water and we never shoot on a boat. Mm. And he, he looks at me very quizzically and says, this is a movie called Ghost Ship, isn't it? <laughs> I said, yeah. He said, so will we ever think we're on a boat? I said, of course, it's called Ghost Ship. And, and, and will we ever think we're on the water? I said, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I said, but you know, once we, once we get on the water, I can't control the gyros. And you know, if the, if the swells are bigger than we expected, it's gonna take us another half a day, a day, two days more to shoot. Mm -hmm. And if I'm on a real boat, I can't move things around. I can't dolly. I mean, those, yeah. those structures are pretty solid. So he looked at me and he said, so, you want, you're telling me you'll make this movie for this budget this, under these circumstances. And I said, yeah. And he mm -hmm. goes, and not a dollar over budget. I said, not a dollar over budget. And he said, go make the movie. Wow. So we went back to Australia and uh, a few months later and we made the movie. We made Ghost Ship. Um, That's so cool. And we did it, you know, on, you know under budget and, and, and it looked fantastic. Uh, and it did very well. And from that, Lorenzo then called me into the office and said, look, you know, I, I really want you to be making bigger pictures for us. Ah, and, okay. Uh, and that led to Starsky and Hutch. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, led to Constantine. Yep. And then led to Superman. And, you know, I was sort of on my way. Yeah. And uh, uh, was, was uh, Valkyrie filmed there as well? Or was that... Um, you no, know, Valkyrie was United Artists. It was different. That's different right. Company, and we that's shot right. that in Berlin. Yeah. This is actually like a real perfect segue to, um, to those bigger movies. What was it like, you know, getting, uh, getting your chance to work on those kinds of IPs? All of a sudden, you know, there's Constantine and then Starsky and Hutch. And then all of a sudden, 
the big man, Superman, is right. is is right up there. Yeah. What was it like, you know, kind of uh, working with those with those kinds of properties? You learn you learn very quickly. They have the same problems that I had with home movies for three hundred fifty thousand yeah. dollars. You never have enough time, and you mm -hmm. never have enough money. Yeah, and so you're always trying to figure out, okay, how am I going to do it this way? How am I going to do that? Is there a way of sh shooting it in a, in a different way? Do I really need 25 visual effect shots for this sequence? Can I do it in 15? What would I lose if I did it in 15? Yeah. You know, uh, emotionally, what's the audience going to miss if I take this scene out, but I replace it with a, with a less expensive scene? You know, you're still analyzing all of these things as I was doing all along my career. Mm -hmm. But it's only, it's, it, the stakes are a bit bigger and, and, the, and, and the, the outcome is going to be bigger and more people are going to see it. Yeah. So, you know, the, the, the fear factor of screwing up is greater. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but, you know, it's, uh, they're challenging. Um, mm -hmm. I really enjoyed making them. Yeah. Uh, they were good stories. We worked on, on scripts for a long time before we made them. Right. Um, and we were given that luxury. And then, you know, we, we made them as best we can, you know, as, as best we could. And luckily for my career and for the studios, they, they all made money. They all did well. Yeah. And so uh, for, for movies like, uh, like Constantine and uh, Starsky and Hutch, were people that were ori originally associated with those properties, were they involved at all? Uh, did you get to work with them the same way that you worked with, uh, with Bill Gaines? Very, very briefly on Starsky and Hutch, um, not the creators, mm -hmm. um, but the two fellows who were in the TV series, we, we gave them two cameo parts. In oh, the that's movie. great. And so mm -hmm. I got to meet them and hear, you know, their stories about working on television in the early days and how, how incredible that was. And with Constantine, um, you know, it was taken from a comic and we right. really weren't dealing with the uh, creators of the comic book. We were dealing with the writers of the screenplay. So, no, we, we were more involved with, you know, how do we tell the story in the best possible way, mm -hmm. in the most effective way. Yes, being respectful to the comic book, but I never had the opportunity to really discuss with the creators of that comic book what 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 would make them happy. Gotcha, gotcha. Um, we we just tried to do that. We did on Superman. Uh, yeah. We did meet with the estate uh, and and have conversations with the estate because with that one, you know, for me, I used to watch the TV show as a kid. Right. But for me now to be making a Superman movie was like, I was on, I was just like blown out of my brain. And so yeah. I really wanted to make sure that we didn't do anything that would hurt the franchise or that the, the original creators, both mm -hmm. of them were, were now deceased, but the estate yeah. wouldn't be very thrilled about. And so we, we had many conversations with the estate and made sure that they really liked what we were doing. Since you already had the working relationship with uh, Richard Donner and Superman Returns echoed so much of the movie that he made and the, and the uh, you know, Superman 2, since this one apparently like, it, it did an interesting like dovetail while it was keeping the, it was, staying, it was staying true to the continuity that was set up in Superman 2, the theatrical version, the one that it was like the Richard Donner, Richard Lester kind of mashup. Yeah. Um, and very much, you know, like in the spirit of that, uh, that first Richard Donner film, was, uh, was Donner involved? You know, like, um, was he like kind of uh, popping in a little bit as, as a consultant of some sort? Or was he just giving you his blessing and walking away from it? Yeah. Um, first of all, working with Donner is the best. He, he, yeah. he liked the best. I mean, working on his Tales from the Crypt with him and 
you know, in those days he was shooting uh, the, the Mel Gibson's uh, and Danny Lethal Weapon, Weapon. Yeah, uh, movie. Weapon movies. Oh, Lethal yeah. Weapon movies, and you know, he would invite us to the set, and I'd be down there with him. And I mean, it was just such an exciting mo- moment for me working with Dick on Tales, and yeah. also on, on on being invited to his set and seeing him work. Uh, mm-hmm. It was a it was such a delight. He was a friend of the court, I guess is the best way to describe him. Yeah. On on the, on the Brian Singer version of uh, of uh, Superman Returns, um, mm-hmm. he wasn't really involved with it, but I know Brian and I both respected and loved uh, Dick a lot. And yeah. uh, so we, you know, he, I think he saw an early version of it and we wanted his opinion and get some notes from him. Um, so yeah, he was, you know, we both love him. Did you get to, did you get to uh, show it to Tom Mankiewicz as well since Tom was so instrumental in making that first one a success? Um, actually, I think Tom was gone by then. Tom, you know, oh, wrote really? some prep for me. And uh, Dick, Dick introduced me to Tom and said, you know, we should have Tom write a Tales from the Crypt. And I said, well, you know, let, me, let me meet with Tom and let's give him some comic books and see what he thinks and let me hear what he has to say. And I mean, Tom was like the best. Yeah. You know, talk about writers that you love to work with. Mm-hmm. I would do anything to work with Tom again. Oh, um, but I think when we made Superman, I think he had, he had passed away a long time ago. Oh, gotcha. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, I, I, re- I really, you know, there's, there's so much I really enjoyed in, uh, in Superman Returns. I was really taken by the fact that it was, it was such a faithful, you know, reintroduction of that, of that series. I mean, just like getting the, getting the John Williams theme and everything, getting the sort of opening credits, getting obviously Brand- Brando's estate involved. Um, but that movie had such an interesting road you know, to, to development. It went through so many different twists and turns. Were you involved in any of those oh, earlier yeah. iterations? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah? <laughs> oh, oh, boy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, a, funny, a funny story, a funny story was I, I was, um, I was finishing up Constantine. Yeah. And we had, I think, two or three weeks to go. And I, a guy comes over to me, he goes, um, you know, Alan Horn and uh, Lorenzo want to see you right away. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what have I done? I mean, <laughs> I'm going to get fired. Right. How, why are they going to fire me? Mm-hmm. What, you, what do you mean right away? Right away. Now. So I leave the set and I'm walking over to the office. I'm thinking to myself, what did I do? I mean, I must have really pissed them off in a big way. They're pulling me off the set. They're going to fire me. Yeah. So I go up to their office. And by the time I got up to the office, I was so fired up. I went, listen, guys, I, I don't know why you want to fire me, but it doesn't make any sense. Let me finish the two weeks mm-hmm. and then just never work with me again. And it's almost looked, like you're it's almost like you're Charlie Sheen walking into uh, Lou Brown's office in Major yeah, League. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so they look at me like I'm nuts. And they yeah. said, what are you talking about? Sit down. And I said, okay. And they said, we want to talk to you about your next movie. I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> that's good. That's, that's, that's a good sign. I guess I'm not getting fired today. <laughs> kind of and decompressing said, now a little bit. Just like, okay. Yeah, and, and I said, what is it? And they, they, they pushed a script across the table at me. And it said on it, flyby. And I said, oh, yeah. flyby. And they said, what do you mean, what's flyby? You know what flyby is. And I went, I don't have a clue what flyby is. <laughs> and, and they said, Superman. I went, Superman? I'm not making that. I said, you've been trying for 10 years to make this movie. I'm going to spend you know, nine months or over a year working on this. And then you're not going to make it. And I'm going to feel like I wasted a year of my life. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do it. So I'm not, I'm no, I'm going back to the set. 
and I left. And the next day I got another call, wow. come back. And they said, um, so what, what, why wouldn't you do this? And so we started working out and talking through like what would be the problems and mm -hmm. I reached certain benchmarks would that be good enough. So if we got the script into this condition and we did this and we did that and we did everything in terms of that and the budget. But the, I said, the only thing I can't ask you for is, and you could kill the movie because you could say to me, we can't find Superman. Right. And so, um, and I don't feel, I, I can't ask you for that. I mean, you're putting up a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And they said, we really want to make this movie. Yeah. So um, I reluctantly, initially signed on. And I, st I started working with uh, Brett Ratner. Mm -hmm. um, and then and that was, that was the, the flyby. That was the J.J. Abrams script, right? Yeah. Okay. And yeah. so um, about a week after I started, I walked into the office and uh, Brett wasn't there. And I said, where's Brett? And he says, he's gone. I said, oh, when is he coming back? And they said, no, no, he's gone. And I said, he's gone. When did that happen? So then I get a call from the studio and they go, um, we're going to bring in another director. And so I worked with uh, another director for about a year. Mm -hmm. um, and then he told me one day, and it was always going to be shot in Australia because yeah. the exchange rate and the crews and the light and all that. And so mm -hmm. he called me and said, he said, I, I don't fly. Oh, jeez. I said, don't you think you should tell the studio that? What are you telling me for? And so he wanted to shoot it in, in, in Vancouver. And then they said no. And mm -hmm. then, you know, after about a year working with him, he was gone. Oh, man. And by then- So it's basically like, it's, it's all your fears kind of like playing out yeah, in front of yeah. you. And then, wow. and, then, uh, and then I got a call from the studio and they said, well, have you ever worked with a guy named Brian Singer? And I said, no, I know his work, but I don't know him. And they said, well, we're going to bring him in. And then uh, Brian and I met and uh, we spent uh, almost all night in a restaurant in Hollywood um, talking. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we decided, okay, we, we, can, we can do work together and we'll, we'll make the movie. Yeah. And so we threw out pretty much everything that we had done before then, which is about two years of my life. Right. And, and started all over again and uh, made Superman Returns. Yeah. So, so, so was it... So the was it idea to incorporate the, you know, the original films in there or? Um... Well, the, the one thing that we wanted to do, um, and I think Brian would say absolutely yes, mm -hmm. was we wanted to make a, a contemporary story, be respectful of what they originally created. Yeah. And be an, an emotional story. Because we both felt that, you know, you can do action, but if you're not connected to the characters, the action doesn't really, uh, for me, it doesn't, it doesn't hold water. But if yeah. you're connected to the characters emotionally and somebody gets into a fight or somebody does this, then, you're, then you have something at stake. Mm -hmm. and, and that's the one thing Brian and I, I think, really agreed on throughout and, and wanted to make that movie. And, and I think we, we, success, we, we did it successfully. Um, and, and, and that was really it. I mean, it was, it was a, a big jump for everybody, for yeah. the estate, for Warner Brothers, for everybody, and for us to say we wanted him to have a child. Mm. That, you know, yeah, that and, was, and that was, that, that was, was a really interesting twist there. <laughs> yeah. And that was a very contemporary thing that I was very concerned that the, both the studio and, and the estate would, would sign on to. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, the rest of the people that involved in the show, I mean, uh, the editor and composer, John Ottman. Yeah. Is just, I mean, they, they don't get any better. 
Oh, he's he's terrific. He is. I'm I'm such a fan. What he does, he does better than anybody, and that's cutting and composing. Mm -hmm. So working with John, both on that and on Valkyrie, yeah, was was a real treat. Oh man, that's. I I remember just like um, just really being taken by Superman Returns and really. Really thinking now that, you know, like nowadays, because like as I recently uh, revisited it and I realized just how far ahead of its time it was because mm-hmm. that was really like the soft reboot that so many other franchises are doing now. Like they right. did that with, uh, with Godzilla. Like yes. they, made that, um, they made that almost like a, basically like a direct sequel to the 1954 movie. And then you have um, obviously Jurassic World and everything where and all these different other franchises that are continuing but at the same time they can start from their own from where they are right now and they won't really be lost um was were there you know like uh, from what i understand i remember hearing uh, brian singer talking about how the seek the next one was going to go like full wrath of khan like a whole lot of a lot of action you know with it was uh, were you still involved in that and ready to go with that yeah yeah yeah, and then and then it just went. Uh, Warner's decided to go a different direction. Yeah, and 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 uh, you know Brian went on to something else, and I went on to something else, and you know we, we never turned back. Um, but I'm still friendly with Brandon Ralph. Oh yeah, who played Superman? I mean, he did a great job in that movie. I think he's one of the best Superman ever. Um, he, he really was. I was I was real I I was really impressed by him. And yeah. you know that considering that was so you know I mean he was like in his early twenties or so. Am, am I right on yeah. that? Yeah, I think he was. Yeah, wow. It, 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 it was great. I tell you, you know, people often ask me what, like, if you had one moment in in your career that you would mm-hmm. say was the was the you know the, the biggest moment in your career that you got off on, I would say that's an easy answer: the scoring mm-hmm. of Superman Returns. Yeah, to be in that room to watch the movie behind the orchestra, hundred piece orchestra, and see John Ottman at work, yeah, and see the conductor at work. I mean, I didn't want it to end. It was yeah. like I was in I was in another world. It just put me in a whole other place. I've never forgotten what the scoring session was like for Superman Returns. Just so special. And a really good score too. It wasn't just it wasn't just using, you know, just recycling John, you know, John Williams themes. Right. They they right. they helped to enhance it. You know, like but the I actually used a piece from uh from Superman Returns, the um the very end of How Could You Leave Us. Um yeah as the end of this medley that I did, that I set up for my wedding. My wife basically just let me have that half hour block when everyone is coming into the, well, we got married in the jewel box over in, uh, in St. Louis. So everyone was coming in. So I had this music playing um, about a half hour's worth. And it was all these different, like 30 second snippets of all these different, um, all these different love theme medleys, you know, all these different love themes from all these different films. And it started off with the original love theme from Superman and it ended with the very end of how could you leave us from Superman returns. And it it made for a really cool bookend. I'd love to hear that. That sounds sounds like a great medley of, of, of music. Oh, it was fun. It was really fun. Yeah. I'll definitely send that. I I don't think, I I don't think John gets enough credit. uh, John Ottman, for what he did on Superman Returns in terms of music. Because you hear the theme and you go, oh, that's John Williams. Oh, right. it's John Williams. And yet John Ottman wrote a lot of music that uh, was, for, was, was particular for Superman Returns. Absolutely. Beautifully. I mean, just, just beautifully. And it, yeah, it, it, it 
worked in it worked itself in really really well it didn't feel like whenever he had a john williams piece that it was so jarring and it took you out of it like it was it complemented everything really well i was really i i i was i was a big fan of that and still a fan of john ottman to this day like i fell in love with him on the usual suspects and it was just like yeah um i never look back with uh you know with his stuff so go since uh you had mentioned uh working with john on valkyrie um what was it like um, putting that project together? Since you said that that was over at United Artists, did you have a, did you basically like satisfy a deal at Warner Brothers when you were able to, to do something over at United Artists or was it, yeah, actually, how, how did that come actually, out? While we were making Superman, Brian asked me one day, we were in his trailer talking and he said, you know, he started telling me about Stauffenberg and about the story. Yeah. And, and uh, we chatted a little bit about it. And the original intent was to make it like for $15 million uh, with no names involved. Oh. And uh, Warner Brothers had said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do that for you guys. And mm. then one day, Brian got a call from Tom Cruise ah. <laughs> and said, you know, uh, I, I like this project. I, I would put up money for it. And then from that, well, there was a conversation that they had about Tom wanting to play Stauffenberg. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we didn't like that idea, he was still in. He still wanted to finance it. Oh, wow. Um, and so it became a much bigger movie once Tom got involved. Yeah. Um, and it was a very, very difficult movie to make because we, you know, at one point the studio said, well, where do you think we should make the movie? <coughs> Excuse me. And I said, well, I think there, we have four choices. We could do, we could go to Prague, we can go to Budapest, we can go to Berlin, or we can go to Culver City. And they laughed and I said, no, we really could do it in Culver City. It'll be a bit more money with visual effects, but we could do it in Culver City. And Brian and I, wanted to be where the ether was. We wanted to be in the same breath, in the same air. And so yeah. we, we, we looked at the other places, but we decided on Berlin. Oh, of course, yeah. And you know, we lived in Berlin like nine months making that movie. Um, and it was hard because you would see, you know, you would still see on the buildings there, and if you've ever been to Berlin, you know this, um, dates and names on the bottom of the building, you know, yeah. dug into the stone. And I would say to my location, what, what is that? Who's that, is that the builder? And he would say, no, that's the name of a person who lived in the building. And the date is the date they were taken away. Oh, wow. So, you know, it was a very difficult you know, movie to make. And, you know, I, I showed it to the military. I was invited to Washington to show it to the military. Mm-hmm. And uh, we had this uh, screening and I did a Q&A and, and uh, about a thousand guys in the audience. And then there was a, a, a red carpet reception afterwards and and colin powell was there and and i did this q a and i said at the end you know i'm really surprised none of you guys asked me about security what do you what do you think i did about security i mean i have one of the biggest if not the biggest movie star in the world Mm -hmm. and uh the the filmmaker is a jew and i'm a jew Mm -hmm. and here we are in berlin making a movie about stauffenberg the guy who tried to kill hitler what do you think i did for security and they said (laughs) oh you got german guys and i went no and they said, oh, you, you brought in American guys. And I said, you know, for everything that's good about America, security isn't one of the big things that I would <clears throat> make the, their attributes. And they said, what did you do? And I said, I brought in Mossad. Wow. And I, I brought in, you know, retired Mossad people. And they were fantastic. They were very, they helped us a great deal. And they were right on top of everything. Um, nice. But it was a very difficult movie to make because, you know, was, uh, one, one day I was coming home from, from the shoot and, and my driver used to always have a, the newspaper for me. And mm-hmm. I re- I'm reading the newspaper and it's, 
it says um, that the Al-Qaeda cell has settled in Berlin and is looking to destroy an American installation. And all I could oh. think of was it was my movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, wow. And, and so I got nuts and, and my yeah. guys were on it already. Oh, man. Um, wow. So when we were shooting the, the fields where the planes were taking off and landing, mm -hmm. uh, one was a macadam field and one was a, was a uh, grass field. Mm -hmm. uh, the grass field, I believe, was the actual field where Hitler landed. And mm -hmm. so I was concerned that, you know, my God, they're going to, you could get in there overnight and plant bombs and and I was just crazy. And my guys from Mossad got there the two days before, made sure that no bombs were there, made sure the dogs came in and cleared it. I mean, it was just amazing. But yeah. it was a very, I mean, I, I could probably write a book on the making of Valkyrie without ever touching once on the actual filming of Valkyrie. Really? Wow. Yeah, because we had issues with the government. Um, we had problems with uh, just a lot of problems. I mean, you know, that last sequence was shot actually where it happened. And mm -hmm. at the time, it was called the War Ministry. Now yes. it's, it's the Memorial Museum. And mm -hmm. so we had, to, we had to go in there and on, on, on a Friday night and be done by 9 o'clock and everything restored 9 o'clock in the morning on Monday. Wow. And we shot everything, sent it to the lab, got it all done. Mm -hmm. And two days later, the lab calls me and they go, we destroyed the, mo we, we destroyed the film. I go, what do you mean we destroyed the film? Whoa. Well, we overexposed it. Oh. Now, we never got to why that happened. And mm -hmm. it was an insurance claim. But yeah. we had to reschedule everything with all the government agencies and all the problems we had. We had to revisit that to reschedule <clears throat> the reshoot oh, man. before we finished the movie. We weren't coming back. Yeah. Uh, and we had issues like that all along the way. You know, I, I had a person come into my office who was a secretary to Hitler. She must have been in her 80s. And wow. saying, oh, he was such a good man. He took such good care of us. I would do anything for Hitler. Oh. And all I, all I could think of was, can some, anybody got a piano wire I can have for five seconds? <laughs> I could take her head off. I mean, it was, it was just amazing. You know, we would run into these people who would, who would remember that. And, and one of my fondest memories of making the movie, oddly enough, was on Saturdays, I was living in uh, uh, Charlottenburg, and near mm -hmm. there, they had a farmer's market. And I would be uh, half asleep, but my wife would say, we got to go for a walk, get some fresh air. And we would go over to this farmer's market. And at this farmer's market, there was an Arabic guy who had a falafel truck. Yeah. And he made the best falafels. Oh, nice. So I would get a falafel from him every week. And each, each time we would meet, he spoke only Arabic and German. Mm -hmm. I spoke only English and a smattering of French, right? And right. yet he and I got along like gangbusters. And people would be sitting there watching us converse, mm -hmm. mainly acting out, and go, it's amazing. How, how could you guys talk? You guys... And I really loved talking to this man, you know? And he, he was an Iraqi guy who moved to Berlin. Right. And one of my fondest memories of making that movie was that relationship that I had with this guy. He knew I was a Jew. He was an, an Iraqi guy. He knew I was here making a movie and he was, he had this falafel truck and we used to have the greatest conversations um, in languages that not, <laughs> neither of us understood, but we understood the emotion of what we were saying. Wow. And it was so just cool. a, it was just a treat to, to, yeah. to know him and to be, you know, to be friends with him. Um, when I screened Valkyrie for the military, 
Yeah. Uh, when I went to that red carpet reception, it changed my life and my wife's. And we, we couldn't believe how young these guys were and how damaged they were. Right. And we started getting involved <clears throat> with um, the military wow. and raising money for veterans. I'm not a veteran. I had flat feet. I had a heart murmur. I still have mm -hmm. a heart murmur. And yeah. so I, they didn't want me. But I knew nothing about the military. And we started raising money because we found out that if you don't have an address, mm -hmm. you don't have rights to money. Oh. If you're living in a car or I'm living in your basement, you don't have rights. Yeah. So mm -hmm. we raised some money in, uh, uh, in all, all over. But specifically, we put the money to work in Bremerton, Washington. And we, put, we started putting guys in housing one by one. Oh. And, and from that, um, we, we met with uh, uh, Patty Murray, who was a senator from the state of Washington, mm -hmm. told her what we were doing. Three years later, she told us she believed in what we were doing, and she just got a $3 million grant from Congress. Wow. So that helped. And then I come back to Los Angeles, and one day I get a call uh, from a, a little voice, and she says, I'm looking for Gil Adler. This is Debbie Reynolds. Oh. Go, Debbie Reynolds? She said, yeah, do you know who I am? And I said, you, you mean yeah. the Debbie Reynolds from Singing in the Rain, Debbie Reynolds? <laughs> and she said, yeah. And I said, yeah, I know who you are. Why are you calling me? And she said, well, I understand you're involved with the veterans. And I'm involved with this organization since in the early 50s called the Thalians. And we want to raise money this year for veterans. And we want you to produce the show. And so I produced the show. We, we did a night at the Playboy Mansion. Um, mm -hmm. we, we, we honored Hefner. Um, yep. We know guys from Guns N' Roses, so we brought them in. We brought some comics in, Rich Little, and, uh, among others. Um, mm -hmm. And in one night, we raised a million dollars for the veterans, and we gave it to an organization, which is still in operation, called Operation Mend, M-E-N-D, at UCLA. Mm -hmm. And they do plastic surgery and mental health. Wow. And, uh, so we raised money for them. And then I sort of left the film business for a while and spent about five years just trying to raise more money uh, for veterans, for housing, and also for dogs, because we found that the guys who were injured, um, the, the dogs meant a great deal to them. But mm -hmm. you don't realize that they cost about $5,000 to train. Why? Because you got to train the dog. You got to provide food for the dog. Yeah. You got to make sure the, the, the veteran isn't going to kill the dog. Right. And, and, uh, and so, you know, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a process. So we actually got about five or six dogs trained and with veterans. Um, and only then sort of after those five years or so, I, I started thinking about making movies and television again. Um, yeah. cause I, I, you know, so you, you know, because of that one movie that I made, I never would have, if you would have said to me while making that movie, you're going to, be involved with veterans, I would have said to you, you're nuts. I know nothing about these guys. Right. So it's, it's kind of interesting that you really never wrote, really never know where the road will take you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Is, uh, is Operation Men still going around today? Yes. Okay. Yes. And is it's it? CLA. Excellent. And they accept donations. If anyone listening would like to give money to Operation Mend, M-E-N-D at UCLA, look mm -hmm. them up. Um, they're online. Um, really good, uh, really good organization, plastic surgery and mental health for veterans. And they really do it. That's fantastic. I'll include a link too in the, in the show notes for this right. as well. Right. Um, so, um, so, so you get back into, into producing 
um, and during like this last like uh, say like you know ten year period or so, um, how many different uh, how many different IPs have you been working with? Well, probably about a half a dozen. I mean, I really don't I don't really have a big organization. My wife is really the development chief. Yeah, um, and we are looking for you know good things, and I I know I can't make everything, so right. that, that which I take on. Um, I've been very fortunate that for the most part, if I take it on, I get it made by hook mm -hmm. or by crook, I get it made. Yeah. So they, they really have to be things that I get passionate about and, and really feel excited about. Um, and it's extended all over the world now. I mean, I, I was invited to China two years ago and went there and met with people that wanted to put up money for us. And, and then the, you know, the government's got into problems with the American governments and that sort of fell apart, but yeah, India, Indonesia, um, all over the world, I, I'm, I'm involved with um, various people from, from filmmakers to financiers from all over the world, which is kind of an interesting, interesting journey, having come from a little floor covering store in Yonkers to dealing with people from all over the world uh, with some big numbers. Uh, yeah. And so I, I, really, I really only now do things that I really feel passionate about. And, and I, I learned something, you know, when I saw uh, The King's Speech, yeah. and I saw Slumdog Millionaire, and I saw the movie about... Um, Stephen Hawkins, you know, oh, yeah, the, yep. I said the to my wife, of everything, right? yeah, I said to my wife, how come I don't get those scripts? I get these big, you know, tentpole pictures. Mm -hmm. I don't really want to make the tentpole pictures. I mean, if I found a, a great one, I would do it. But most of them, you know, they're strings attached and they're not great stories or things I don't want to spend two years of my life on and and these movies are great and so i said where are those movies i want to get the, i want to be involved in those kinds of things they can yeah. still be entertainment but they need to be things that i can feel something about and mm -hmm. so i realized you know throughout my career you know what what gets me up in the morning is feeling feeling something about these characters yeah so most of the i would say all the things i'm working on now for the streamers and for features ha have that element they all are about people that one way or another, I think whether they're good people or bad people, you care about. Yeah. And, yeah. and that's kind of really what I'm, what I'm kind of doing now. Excellent. Excellent. So, um, so with, with that in mind, I mean, like there are always, um, there are, there's always, you know, you know, different people that are looking to uh, break into this field. Um, what I did with, uh, with, with my own, you know, works and everything, I just, I knew that, that, um, that it was going to be much more difficult to, put together a script and then, you know, then, you know, shop it around, it would be a little bit easier to have the book out first and then say that that is, you know, an IP that can be, can be shopped around. Is that something that you would recommend to, uh, well, to people that are looking to get into this? I, I would say it a little differently. I would say that the more risk you can take out of the equation, the mm -hmm. better off you are. Yeah. I mean, when, even when I go to a, a studio or a streamer and tell them a story, they would like to see the show. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of ironic because you're going to them to say, hey, you can finance the show, then you can see the show. But they right. would like to see. So they want you to do all the work. So if you can yeah. have an outline as opposed to nothing, you're mm -hmm. better off. If you can have a script as opposed to an outline, you're better off. If right. you can have a, an actor or a director who's interested, you're better off. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, it's, really, it, it's really a question of risk reward. So the, the, the more risk you can take out of the equation, Mm -hmm. probably the better off you are in getting it made. Mm. And, and I, I don't say that that's an easy thing to do. Right. Because it's very difficult to get an actor. It's very difficult to get a director. It's even very difficult to get a, a, an A-list or a good writer. 
Um, and, of course, and if, yeah. But if you want to be any of those, you know, I, I say to you, the, the most important, besides your talent, the most important element that you need to have is perseverance. Yeah. This business is tough. It's not an easy business. And, mm -hmm. if I, I, and I tell people when I speak at universities or film festivals, um, if you can do anything else, do it. Yeah. It's, it's just tough. I mean, there's nothing quite like it. Um, and I'm glad, you know, my journey is, has been the way it has been and I'm, I'm really very pleased with it, but mm -hmm. it's a, it's a difficult, it's a difficult road. A lot of ups, a lot of downs. Yeah. Um, it's like what, uh, it's like what Paul Schrader said, um, said the only reason why people get into the arts is because they have no choice. Yeah. yeah. And that's really true. That really mm -hmm. is true. And, and the more, the more I'm in this thing, I, I realize how true it is. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, but I but I would encourage people if they want to write, damn it, write. If you want to be a director, you know, mm -hmm. take your telephone. Now you can do it with your telephone. And yeah. Get a few actors and do ten minutes. Just write something, or get something for ten minutes and shoot ten minutes. Then now you're a director. Telling yeah. me you're a director doesn't tell me anything. Showing me ten minutes tells me everything. Right. Right. So as as much of the risk that you can take out. Mm -hmm. Makes it makes it a, a better sell and, a, and it makes it easier to get into the business. Awesome, yeah. That's yeah. And, a, that's... and I'm, I'm of the opinion, you know, I've made very little movies and I've made very very expensive movies, mm -hmm. and budgets don't really mean anything to me in the sense that I'm not impressed that I have this much money as opposed to that much money. So for me, it's all about the relationship, the story, the characters, and the emotion. So if you came to me with a script and you needed a million dollars to make it. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think twice if I loved the script. Yeah. I would make it. Awesome. So it's really about the material more than anything else. Gotcha. Gotcha. And, um, and is there any place where my uh, listeners can find you on social media? Uh, gee, that's a good question. <laughs> Maybe through you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll that work. It. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mind being a liaison if it's, I used to be on Facebook. I, I sort of got fed up with it. Mm -hmm. um, I used to have a website. I sort of got fed up with that. So, you know, we keep it very small. Um, our organization is like three people and we just um, keep it small, keep it about the material. Um, but I'm, but I've been pretty successful in putting together writers and directors and financing and, you know, I, I, I say this facetiously, but it's not, totally facetiously, you know, I rarely, I mean, most of my movies have been studio movies. So the mm -hmm. money is there, right. but I, but most of the time when I'm developing projects, the money finds me. Mm. And I mean that by saying, if I, if, if I make, if I'm developing a script and it's a good script and I'm bringing in this writer and, and, or this actor and, or this director, all of a sudden I get these phone calls from financiers saying, I understand you're developing this or that. What do you need? How can we help you? Mm -hmm. So, so it's like if you if you're dedicated to good material, yeah. which is really what the plot what what you should be, then mm -hmm. everything else sort of with time and it does take time, right? Uh, sort of happens. And I've always Absolutely. been a believer in that. Yeah. I've always felt the cream rises to the top. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I really, really hope that, uh, that all of you, uh, all of you listeners have been able to really take in everything that Gilbert has, uh, has provided for you. Uh, like, like he said, 
it's all about perseverance. It's about passion. It's about getting your material, you know, like out there as, as much as possible. And it really is something, um, it really has been just a real, real pleasure uh, and a privilege to be able to hear Gilbert's story. And I hope that it's, it's affected all of you as much as it has me. So with that in mind, uh, for Gilbert Adler, this is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. And I'll see you next week. <laughs>